You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's January 10th, 2024, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, responses to the Aliquippa Water Authority attack, predatory Sparrow disrupts Iran's gas stations, MITRE launches a threat model for critical infrastructure embedded devices. We welcome guest Don Capelli. Don is Dragos's head of OT Cyber Emergency Readiness Team and will share details about the launch of Dragos's free community initiative to protect small utilities that serve the majority of Americans. The Learning Lab has the final part of a discussion with Dragos's Mark Urban and colleagues Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. They talk building automation systems. The Associated Press outlines state and federal responses to the Iranian attack against the Aliquippa Water Authority in western Pennsylvania. The Environmental Protection Agency withdrew a proposed cybersecurity auditing rule in October after it was challenged by Arkansas, Missouri, and Iowa. Several other bills are tied up in Congress. The AP explains... One bill would roll out a tiered approach to regulation, more requirements for bigger or more complex water utilities. The other is an amendment to farm bill legislation to send federal employees called circuit riders into the field to help smaller and rural water systems detect cybersecurity weaknesses and address them. States are also applying for grants from a $1 billion federal cybersecurity program provided by a 2021 federal infrastructure law. Meanwhile, Dragos is offering free access to its online support and vulnerability detection software to water and electric utilities that bring in under $100 million in revenue. More on that later in the show. To be sure, recent incursions by Iran's cyber avengers into U.S. and European municipal water systems represent a threat to industrial controls, but that may not have been the point of these most recent attacks. The control systems hit were Israeli-made, and Dragos thinks the point being made was political and persuasive, and that the incidents didn't immediately represent a serious attempt at physical disruption. Dragos tweeted at the end of December, Cyber Avengers hacktivist group actively targeting critical utilities in the U.S. and Europe is less about making an impact on OT and more about driving geopolitical agendas. So, there can be a fine line between sabotage and influence operations. Iran itself hasn't been immune to cyber attacks affecting control systems. On December 18th, about 70% of Iran's gas stations went out of operation due to what Iranian media at first described as a software problem, the AP reports, Reuters subsequently reported that Iran's oil minister attributed the outages to a cyber attack. Iranian media attributed the attack to predatory Sparrow, a group Iran attributes to Israel, and about which Israel had no comment. Predatory Sparrow itself said in its Telegram channel 
This cyber attack comes in response to the aggression of the Islamic Republic and its proxies in the region. The disruption appears to have affected gas station point-of-sale systems, the Times of Israel reports. Predatory Sparrow claims to have accessed the payment systems of the impacted gas stations, as well as each station's central server and management system. The U.S. Energy Department's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response is offering $70 million in funding to support research into technologies designed to increase resilience and reduce risks to energy delivery infrastructure from a variety of hazards, including cyber and physical threats, natural disasters, and climate change-fueled extreme weather events. The DOE adds, This new competitive funding opportunity will be available to public and private sector stakeholders, universities, and DOE's national laboratories, and will help advance next-generation innovations that strengthen the resilience of America's energy systems, which include the power grid, electric utilities, pipelines, and renewable energy generation sources like wind or solar. MITRE, in collaboration with Red Balloon Security and NARF, has announced a new threat model framework called Embed, designed to provide a common understanding of the threats posed to embedded devices and the security mechanisms required to mitigate them. MITRE explains, Embed provides a cultivated knowledge base of cyber threats to devices, including those observed in the field environment or demonstrated through proofs of concept or theoretical research. These threats are mapped to device properties to help users develop and tailor accurate threat models for specific embedded devices. The organization adds, For each threat, suggested mitigations are exclusively focused on technical mechanisms that device vendors should implement to protect against the given threat with the goal of building security into the device. Embed is intended to offer a comprehensive framework for the entire security ecosystem. Device vendors, manufacturers, asset owners, security researchers, and testing organizations. The threat framework is currently in a pre-release review period and is expected to be released in early 2024. The Department of Homeland Security last week released its annual threat assessment for 2024, predicting that domestic and foreign adversaries likely will continue to threaten the integrity of U.S. critical infrastructure including the transportation sector, over the next year, in part because they perceive targeting these sectors would have cascading impacts on U.S. industries and the American way of life. The DHS notes an increase in racially motivated domestic violent extremists calling for physical attacks against the energy sector. Foreign adversaries, meanwhile, are seeking to develop or improve existing capabilities that can disrupt industrial control systems that support U.S. energy, transportation, healthcare, and election sectors. The report also draws particular attention to three expected areas of Russian activity against the U.S. to emanate from Russia's war against Ukraine, influence operations, privateering by cybercriminals and disruption by hacktivist auxiliaries, and cyberespionage by intelligence services. Iran and China are also prominently mentioned among the cyber threats expected to be active against the U.S. this year. Much of Iran's activity can be expected to be connected to the war between Hamas and Israel. China represents a major continuing threat. Tensions over Taiwan are expected to continue and probably increase. 
But most of China's activity in cyberspace will in all likelihood be directed toward long-term political and especially economic competition with the U.S. and other rivals. It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Dawn Capelli. She is the head of OT Cyber Emergency Readiness at Dragos. Uh, Dawn, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. So I want to talk to you today about um, the challenge that small regional utilities and cooperatives face when it comes to some of the cyber threats that are coming at them. Can you kind of paint the picture for us? So first of all, what is the situation here in the U.S. as an example of, uh, of how these uh, utilities and co-ops are distributed? Well, it was a real eye-opener to me last year. I went to the NRECA conference, their annual cybersecurity conference, and there were hundreds of people there that work in these co-ops. And they asked them, how many of you are a team of one? You're it, you're IT, you're security, you're everything. And half the hands in the room went up. And then they said, how many of you are a team of two? And the other half went up. And they said, how about three or more? There were like three hands. And I realized, wow, these small utilities, these are just electric co-ops, but... Hmm water utilities and natural gas utilities, they're in the same boat. We have 49 million people in 2,000 communities in 49 states that are serviced by these small utilities. And they don't have teams of IT people. They don't have, certainly don't have teams of security people. And they don't really have anyone who understands or is responsible for OT security. So it's a big gap, and it is the critical infrastructure that we all rely on for our personal survival every day. I really want to dig into this because it it's an eye-opener for me. I mean, it's hard to imagine um, something that we label, rightfully so, as critical infrastructure um, having a single person manning the controls. I mean, I, the first thing that comes to mind is that sometimes that person has to sleep. Well, not only sleep, but here's the really shocking part. I heard anecdotally through a reliable source that um, one of the state CIOs, um, he became aware that there was a cyber attack, a compromise of one of their small utilities in the state. And they kept calling and calling and calling and trying to get someone at the utility. And hours later, they finally got a call back. And the person said, I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you, but I'm not only responsible for IT and security, but I also cut the grass. And wow. I have been cutting the grass this whole time you've been calling. And, you know, those those kinds of stories really, I think, bring into perspective what the risk is that we're facing out there. Can you help sort of calibrate the, the picture in my mind? I mean, when we talk about that person 
who's responsible for all those things, including cutting the grass. I mean, how, how many people would someone like that be serving? Well, I mean, you know, like the statistics that I gave you, I, I don't know how many. I, You know, think about your own water. Yeah. I live in a suburb, and I know our municipal water authority is located in a neighborhood. <laughs> and I drive past it, and a lot of times there are no cars there. So, you know, it's not these big, um, big water authorities that come to mind when we think about water and wastewater. So many of us that even if you're not in a rural area, even if you're just in a suburb, chances are your water is coming from a municipal water authority. And so they're probably in a situation similar to that. And so where do we find ourselves in terms of the bad guys coming after these these types of utilities? Well, just um, right around Thanksgiving, uh, a, a water authority not far from me in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, I live in Pittsburgh, they were compromised by a hacktivist group, the Cyber Avengers, which compromised them simply because they were using a PLC that was manufactured by an Israeli company. So, you know, that's the that's one threat that demonstrates that it doesn't matter how small you are, you still could be a target. Aliquippa is a small small area and yet they were targeted for that reason and they weren't the only one there were several water authorities across the country that were targeted in that same attack secondly um at that same nreca conference there were some um two people from a power company small rural co-op that was hit with ransomware and they talked about the impact that that had on them and so there's ransomware threats out there. They don't care who they hit. In fact, they've been getting more small organizations than large because the large have been going to great lengths to protect themselves. And the small are very vulnerable. Um, and now we have these hacktivist threats against them. So there are multiple different threats that they need to be aware of. And the threat environment has definitely escalated recently. Can can you help me uh, calibrate the 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 real world risk level in my mind here? I mean, we we, we do hear these stories, like you say, you know, the small utility uh, in Pennsylvania, but it's my understanding that there was no interruption of service in that case, and we don't hear stories of the lights going out or the water not being delivered or, or being unsafe levels or those sorts of things. So. How do we align the risk with the real-world consequences? Well, I think that we have been lucky. Um, you know, we have seen that these kinds of attacks can have very dramatic impacts. You know, we've seen ransomware attacks just recently on a manufacturer that I'm not going to name them, but we noticed on the grocery shelves that their products weren't there because they were hit with ransomware. And this is a large company. We saw Colonial Pipeline. So to think that there can't be large impacts from attacks against a small organization is not very practical. 
What sort of uh, backup or, or uh, help from the federal government are organizations like this getting? Is there anything? Well, there's a lot of, everyone realizes that this is a gap. I've been talking to CISA, for example, a lot about this. They're very concerned. Um, I have been working with our local cybersecurity advisor from CISA in the Pittsburgh area. He has a lot of contacts with these small municipal organizations. And so I think they, they want to help them. And they now can use the resources and promote the resources that we are offering from Dragos as something that is concrete that they can actually use. In the past, um, because I came out of retirement to help small and medium organizations with OT cybersecurity, I've, you know, this is my life now. I see a lot of recommendations for this is what you should do. And it's always what. And what we're providing at Dragos is we're giving them the how. We're giving you the tools. We're not just telling you, go do this, figure out how. We're telling you how. We're giving you templates. We're giving you toolkits. And now with our community defense program, we're actually giving them the technology that they can put into place. Well, let's dig into the details. I mean, you're, you're mentioning some of the things here. Can can you give us a, a high-level description of, of this initiative from you and your colleagues there at Dragos? Yes. So our community defense program offers our Dragos platform, same platform that's being used by large power companies, gas, uh, manufacturing organizations all over the world. We're offering it to small municipal and city local utilities that have under $100 million in revenue for free. So they get our platform. They get access to Dragos Academy, which provides them with OT security training. Um, They get access to OT cert, which um, they could get anyway. And they are opted into Neighborhood Keeper. Neighborhood Keeper is a collective defense program that we run that takes anonymized data from customers that opt in. And if you're in community defense, you are opted in. And it's anonymized. So we don't know who these organizations are, but our threat hunters can see, like with the Aliquippa water attack, if all of those water utilities had been part of that, we would have seen there is a coordinated attack happening here. There's a compromise that's hitting multiple organizations in the water sector. We don't know who they are, but we know what sector they're in and we know basically what region they're in. And then we can communicate with them. We don't know who they are, but we can say, hey, we see that you have a threat in your environment. There's a bunch of you that do. Let's all get together and let's talk about it and figure out how you should all be responding and how we can help. So to me, it's just, it's an enormous step forward to counter this risk. What can an organization expect? I mean, we've been talking about how under-resourced they are. How do you try to offset some of that burden of onboarding someone? Well, it's a self-service program. So we simply, they apply. If they're accepted, 
They get instructions and it tells them, here's how you install it. Um, it runs in a virtualized environment. So first you need instructions on how to set up that virtualized environment. You set it up, you install it. Now it's running. Then we are putting together training programs so that we'll meet with them and we'll provide the training to show them how to use the platform. So they'll be able to use the platform to, to, to know what assets do I have? What vulnerabilities do I have? Of those vulnerabilities, which ones should I address immediately? Because the Dragos platform will tell them which ones need to be addressed now. They're actively being exploited, so you need to address them now. And they'll get alerts when there's a threat in their environment that they should pay attention to. If they don't have the time, because they only have that one person and he's out cutting the grass, <laughs> that those alerts are going into Neighborhood Keeper. And so that way someone else might notice the alert and be able to contact them. What do you say to the person who's probably listening and, and uh, maybe cynically rolling their eyes and saying, ah, you know, here's a program from Dragos to, uh, to generate leads and, uh, you know, try to upsell somebody to, to, something, uh, to something else. Uh, it strikes me that I don't sense that that's, that's really what this is about. No, and, you know, when I started OT Cert for Dragos two years ago almost, that was the reaction that I got, um, mm. especially from the media. Oh, there's a business model here. You, you're doing this. You have an ulterior motive. Well, we've been around now. OT Cert has more than 1,600 members in 60 countries. And I think people have found, nope, there's no ulterior motive. We are not trying to sell anything. And especially with community defense, Community defense program is for organizations that have under 100 million in revenue. We are giving it to them because we know they can't afford to pay for it. So if they can't afford to pay for it, they certainly can't afford to pay for anything else. Mm. So that's why we're giving it to them for free. Our mission at Dragos is safeguarding civilization, and that's why we're doing that. That is solely why we're doing it in support of that mission. What are your aspirational goals here? I mean, as you look a, you know, a year from now, uh, as this rolls out and people start to adopt it, where do you hope we find ourselves? I hope we find ourselves in a situation, like I just said, with Aliquippa Water. I hope that we have some use cases where we actually detect the threat and are able to work with these small organizations to counter that threat before there's any impact. To me, that, that would be success. We know those threats are out there. We know that they're coming. So we need to be able to help defend against them. Don Capelli is head of the OT Cyber Emergency Readiness Team at Dragos. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. In this week's Learning Lab, Mark Urban is back with the third part of his discussion on building automation. 
He's joined by Dragos's Daniel Gaeta, an ICS and OT cybersecurity senior solutions architect, as well as Zach Spencer, senior enterprise account executive. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Learning Lab. And today we're going to talk about building automation systems. I'm joined uh, by kind of specialists in the area, uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer uh, here at Dragos, a solution architect and a strategic a sales executive here at Dragos that focus on building automation. It's connectivity between these devices that you know operate in a building. It's connectivity to the outside world. I mean, uh, Daniel brought up the example of you know an HVAC technician you know accessing into a technology. It's increase internet connectivity. And then you made the point, it's even the exchange of information on the internet that makes, you know, exploits and kind of open doors much easier to find. So I guess connectivity is to blame, like much things in our, you know, modern world, uh, the, the, the curse and the blessing of these things, you know, the good and the bad. Right, right. I mean, the amount of, you know, it's and it's not for nothing, right? There are good reasons that these uh, these institutions are connecting these systems. They They gain... Uh, sort of, you know, as with anything, extreme network benefits by connecting these systems within their own environments, by connecting their um, their automation systems to their elevator controls, they gain, um, you know, more accurate ways to control each of them based on each other, such that they have an impetus to connect those systems within their own environments. You know, like I said, so cybersecurity issues notwithstanding, this is going to continue to ramp up as, you know, as I said, technology moves forward. The smart buildings um, mantra gets, you know, pushed forward as, you know, uh, a lot of these companies and institutions are trying to innovate and provide new ways for them to either increase their own revenue by being able to uh, measure their own energy use through these building automation systems. And, you know, the network benefits of being able to connect all, let's say, 1,000 branch banks that you have deployed in the field and see how they're all utilizing energy and, you know, get sort of learnings from the analytics based on those thousand branch banks that you own and have deployed a building automation system within provide a lot of opportunities for these institutions to, you know, as I mentioned, let's say save money on energy in this case by running them in a different way. So it's not to say that these are just being connected for, for no reason or, you know, willy nilly, so to speak. It's more of a, uh, you know, it's a, they have targeted reasons for doing so. And it's just a matter of uh, being able to do so securely that I think is really important at this time. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, just efficiency in energy use, efficiency and, you know, sending elevators from, you know, point A to point B, um, you know, just analysis of, of data and increasing efficiencies in a lot of different areas. That's a good point. That's the reason why it's happening. And, you know, with that, with those reasonings come some, some, come some risks. So, what what are the you know just to kind of close this up if those are the risks you know what how do you recommend you know people kind of approach kind of mitigating those risks yeah and and another good question because it's oftentimes daunting to consider where do I start with the cybersecurity space the field can be abstract and there's a lot of different cybersecurity standards out there so one resource that I that I like to mention it's a it's a SANS resource co-authored by the, our Drago CEO 
Rob Lee, uh, and Sands, uh, Tim Conway, but it's it's the five ICS cybersecurity critical controls um, to really build a world-class ICS OT cybersecurity program. And, and that becomes relevant because it distills uh, sometimes even thousands of security controls into really five different things that, that a building operator or owner or manager could, could utilize to start thinking in about how to build cybersecurity, uh, a cybersecurity program into their building automation system. And that first critical control is, uh, do you have an incident response program? If you do have a building automation system, cybersecurity incident tomorrow, if there is a ransomware incident tomorrow and you can't access your security systems or your chillers, do you have a plan? And that's the first security control for those top scenarios that could affect you. Um, the second is, do you have a defensible architecture and a, a segmented architecture? And this, this white paper and resource I mentioned um, that allocates a couple pages to each of these controls. And one of those talk, a couple of those pages talk about how to build a defensible architecture so that when an event happens, uh, they have limited, that attacker has limited capacity uh, to then move amongst other to other areas of the network um, just by, by the design of it itself. It's actually defensible. The third critical control is, are you monitoring your, your network and do you have visibility into your building automation systems network? And that's that's really gaining awareness around um, what types of assets comprise your energy management and control systems, what kinds of assets are talking and communicating over your building automation systems and, and those security systems. Um, that awareness will then give you an understanding of the ICS OT protocols in, in use, what kind of a baseline to expect, and really to, to identify um, if there are, are any threats or vulnerable assets that, that really need to be addressed. Um, the fourth critical control has to do with that secure remote access, and that's that's absolutely relevant in that that third uh, party uh, maintenance access example. For instance, is that re remote access is it done securely? Is it done at the times according to the service level agreement? Are they accessing the systems at times that are normal, or is it off hours and atypical, and then huge amounts of data are traversing the wire? I mean, those are relevant questions, and so having uh, a plan for secure remote access will, will be vital to, to having a secure environment moving forward. And that last critical control, the fifth critical control, talks about focusing uh, vulnerability management efforts on the assets around the perimeter of the network, because we found time and time again uh, that attackers uh, want to remotely uh, attack these systems, and in doing so, they, they attempt to penetrate these perimeter assets first. And so by remediating vulnerabilities on assets that are on the perimeter, allowing ingress, ingress and egress traffic, you're going to get a lot more benefit than, say, focusing down on assets that are really hard to get to behind several layers of security, et cetera. So those are those five million critical controls and where to start thinking about how to build ICS OT cybersecurity into your building automation systems. Yeah, it's a good, uh, I think we re-ran uh, re the, the Robley uh, episode recently on the five critical controls. So if uh, if you're listening to this, I want to reference back to that. You just have to go back one or two episodes. That was one of the first episodes here, and we replayed it uh, because it's such a uh, it is good insight on sorting through the complexity of frameworks and standards, and kind of distills it down to some key some key uh, some key points. So, thanks for that, Daniel. Uh, I think that so you know that it's building automation. Uh, 
you know, how, how would you, when, when you talk to people in these situations, Zach, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get them to understand or kind of how do you, what do you find them asking you about, you know, how they should approach this? I think a lot of times what I hear most when I'm out in the field talking with, with customers that sort of have these mission critical building automation systems is a lot of times they're sort of in the background and, you know, sort of always been functioning for them. And it's important for a lot of their operations folks who are uh, encouraged to make sure that they're keeping them running, right? I mean, uh, data centers, you know, just to bring up an example from earlier on, are always talking about their uptime, you know, in terms of how many nines of uptime is it, right? In terms of 99 point, however many, 9% of uptime they can get. Usually five nines or six nines is a pretty critical goal that you'll hear in that in that field. And so the operations folks are always worried about uptime of those systems. But for a lot of folks that don't sit directly in the operations seat, uh, don't necessarily know what what goes into keeping those things running and and how critical these building automation systems in this case are to keeping their facilities uh, functional and and either generating revenue or or protecting their facilities. Another thing that comes up a lot is, you know, as soon as we've sort of discussed why it's important and they sort of understand the the criticality of these systems for them. Um, the second is, well, if it hasn't been designed from the ground up with security in mind and we have these, you know, unencrypted protocols in our network and we, if we want to be able to interconnect our systems, how can we do it such that, you know, we can get these network benefits that we talked about earlier, but also provide ourselves with a more defensible architecture that is not uh, just sort of a pot of gold for these threat actors to find when they're poking around uh, within our networks if, if they happen to get uh, some sort of ingress. And I would say that there are, um, in addition to sort of the five critical controls that Daniel just mentioned, there are advancements being made within the building automation industry. As I mentioned, BACnet is the really big uh, open source protocol that everyone's utilizing. Uh, typically moving towards these days, if you're upgrading your building automation systems to sort of a modern generation, and the sort of latest development is a, an, a development on the BACnet protocol called BACnet SC, BACnet Secure Connect, that provides for a, an encrypted version of the BACnet protocol that goes a long way to, you know, as, as sort of all encrypted protocols do to preventing, you know, man in the middle attacks, for example, and, um, you know, replay attacks. If you can, if they have access to that traffic, then they can malform that traffic and then send it to a device farther down the line to either uh, disable it or lock it out or what have you, or have it act in a different way. Those things are very easy without encrypted protocols. Uh, with encrypted protocols, it's, it's much more difficult. And I think that, that while it's still new in its development and deployment, and I would say that it's very rare for someone to have deployed it these days, it's usually a critical uh, next step in terms of when you're upgrading your system to a modern uh, system, if your BAS is critical, Backnet Secure Connect is a really important step in that direction. Preventing the need for uh, static IP addresses and network broadcasts too goes a really long way uh, in terms of kind of where Backnet has come from as a protocol. Like I said, it's been uh, probably 20 years at this point uh, being used in its sort of current form. And obviously the landscape has changed in the meantime. 
Yeah, that's that's good advice. You know, just like many areas of OT cybersecurity can get, you know, pretty technical pretty quickly. I mean, you know, so we talked about the five critical controls as framing, and you just talked about it like a lot of other issues that, you you know, can be done, can be taken to kind of improve the security posture. And that's, you know, one one of the things that I'll say we'll we'll have some episodes coming up uh, talking about the cybersecurity journey. But you can start like, hey, where am I? If if you have mission mission critical building automation systems, data centers, things like that, you know, a good place to to start is get some experts in to do an assessment. Uh, uh, and I'll do a shameless plug here for the Dragos OT cybersecurity assessment as as an example of that. And we have specialists in the building control and data center uh, areas. Uh, but that's because this is a complex area. Uh, you know, you just mentioned 10, you know, Daniel had five things, you just mentioned 10 things and navigating through that all can be a little bit daunting. So um, yeah, that's why we're here at Dragos uh, to give you some information. And if you need some help with that, uh, just give us a call. So Mark Urban with uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for the show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche, Mark Urban, and Montserrat Thomason. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time.